from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Kate Young, and this is our Beats. It's an opportunity for us to change, to fundamentally change the way we look at what and how we eat. And I just hope that this isn't just a small moment in that, but it's the beginning of a food revolution. This week on the show, we talk with professor, entrepreneur, community artist, and urban gardener, Jared Dorch, about the value of growing food beyond the food itself. Harvest Public Media has a story about the effects of climate change on livestock farming and a piece on farming insects for food. All that and more coming up in the next hour here on Earth Eats. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Let's start with food and farming reports from Harvest Public Media. Here's Renee Reed. Hi, Renee. Hello, Kate. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is helping beef up research at 19 historically black colleges and universities. The USDA is investing nearly $22 million in 58 research projects. Four of them are at Langston University in North Central Oklahoma. Wesley Whitaker is the Dean of the School of Agriculture and Applied Sciences. He says institutions like Langston have fewer resources than other land-grant universities. But Whitaker says this funding makes them more competitive. We can engage in a lot more research and also better quality research. Because of these funds also, we can compete uh, for uh, better quality uh, scientists. Uh, to engage in these, research, in these um, uh, research activities. In a statement, Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack said the USDA is working to improve equity. He said the funding will build on land-grant institutions' capacity to come up with solutions for agricultural challenges. African swine fever has been detected in the Dominican Republic, the closest it's been to the U.S. in 40 years. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports on the potential consequences of the disease's spread and efforts to control it. African swine fever isn't a risk for humans, but it's a highly infectious disease that's lethal for pigs. When the Dominican Republic dealt with the disease four decades ago, it led to more than 100,000 pigs dying. Now it's in the Caribbean country again. Paul Sundberg of the Swine Health Information Center says if the disease comes to the U.S., it could devastate the American pork industry. It would stop our pork exports, and we export between 25 and 30 percent of our product right now. So that would be both a production thing as well as an economic uh, consequence. Sundberg says the U.S. Department of Agriculture is coordinating with the Dominican Republic to control the virus. The Department of Homeland Security's Customs and Border Protection have also enhanced inspections. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. An executive order from President Biden could make it easier for farmers to fix their tractors and combines themselves instead of bringing them to a dealer. The so-called right to repair would force manufacturers to allow individuals access to diagnostic equipment to fix products. Mark Blackwell is a cattle farmer in southern Missouri. He says it's also about having options in repair shops. The John Deere dealership in my area owns 21 stores from Topeka, Kansas, to Harrison, Arkansas, to Rolla, Missouri. So if you own a John Deere tractor, you're going to take it to one of their stores. 
Biden's executive order encourages a move toward right-to-repair policies, but it would take state or federal legislation to make it the law. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Katie Pikes, Jonathan All, and Seth Bodine for those reports. For Earth Eats, I'm Renee Reed. The heat of summer reminds us to appreciate things like shade, air conditioning, and water. That's especially true on farms across the country where it can be a struggle to keep livestock cool enough. As Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports, with increasingly hot summers linked to climate change, livestock producers are searching for ways to keep their animals safe in the heat. It's feeding time on Borgic Farms in Raymond, Illinois. Hundreds of 12-week-old pigs are crammed into a long barn, climbing over each other in search of feed. It's pushing 90 degrees today, and the air here is humid and heavy with the smell of pig manure. Phil Borgic owns this farm. He just turned on eight massive cooling fans with six-foot blades to suck the hot air out of the barn. And then, then if the temperature comes up like this afternoon and where it gets warm enough, then we'll turn on those waters. But the first thing that comes is a breeze, and then it gets warmer yet, then we bring out the garden hose and, and hose down the kids and cool them off. Borgic's parents bought the farm in the 1950s, when most livestock farming was done outside. They've since moved things indoors to help control the effects of increased temperatures on the pigs. As we went through time, our fans kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger to pull more air through and, and over the top of the pigs and to get that heat out of there. And then right at the beginning, we didn't add water. And, and so as we learned, we started adding that sprinkle of water then uh, to help cool them off some more. Keeping the animals cool is essential, not just for their comfort and health, but also for their productivity. Amanda Stone researches heat stress in dairy cows at Mississippi State University and says milk production can decrease a whopping 25% when cows are too hot. So if a cow is producing 100 pounds during periods of heat stress, she's only producing 75 pounds. And it's not just cows, it's goats too. Every morning at 5 a.m., the 100-plus goats here at Prairie Fruits Farm and Creamery outside Champaign, Illinois, file in for milking. Milk meters measure how much each goat produces per day. When it's hot, farm co-owner Wes Gerald says there's less milk, and he has noticed the changing climate is having an impact. We've always known that in the summer heat, their production goes down. And we know just by looking at the records that the duration of that and the intensity of that is increasing. Prairie Fruits Farm is pasture-based, meaning the goats spend most of their time outside grazing on acres of grass and shrubs. Like dogs, Gerald says goats pant when they get too hot and take cover in the shade under trees. 
And while the farm does have a couple of small barns, he says they're making plans to build a bigger indoor facility, in part because it's getting harder to keep the goats cool enough. In the summer when it's going to be hotter and more humid, we need the best ventilation possible and we need uh, protection. The price tag on that new barn is nearly $700,000. Climate experts predict that if we continue emitting greenhouse gases at the current rate, most of the summer in Illinois will consist of so-called dangerous heat days. And while that might make the $700,000 barn worthwhile, Gerald says they'll have to find a way to pay for it. And there are few options. Obviously what we need to do is make sure we can sell the products and we can look at what uh, customers are willing to pay. So don't be surprised when you start paying a little more for your milk, pork, or goat cheese. It may just be another cost of doing business in a changing climate. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media covers food and farming in the Midwest. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Tomatoes, celery, uh, early girls in the middle, patio tomatoes on the ends, and then a uh, mix of peppers and celery. And then over here we've got uh, some nice eggplant that are coming. It took Jared Dorch and I a few tries before we successfully scheduled an interview at his home garden in Indianapolis. We were both on board, but life kept getting in the way. When the day finally arrived, it was raining but I wasn't about to cancel. Luckily, Dr. Dorch's home has a covered front porch. Uh, I'm Dr. Jared Dorch. I, uh, I'm actually a professor of communication at Ivy Tech here in Indianapolis. Um, I live in the Garfield Park area. I just moved down here maybe less than a year ago, so I'm getting to know the neighborhood, moving from a suburban area to a more urban area. He lives in a bungalow on Nelson Street in the Garfield Park neighborhood in Indianapolis. It's part of the Big Car Collaborative's Artist and Public Life Residency in the Cruft Street Commons. The Tube Factory art space is just around the corner, and Jared Dorch has been connected with the art collective for about 10 years. But I was here to talk to him about his work as a gardener. Jared is the owner and operator of Soulful Gardens. I asked him how he got started. Well, Sofa Gardens came out of, while I was working on my dissertation, five years or so back, I was really stressed out, wasn't eating great, just needed to do something different. So me and my dad, we started a garden in my backyard. Uh, my parents had moved near where I was living before, and my mom, for some reason, wasn't going to let my dad have a garden. So I was like, you know what, i got plenty of space. How about we start one in my backyard? And it was Memorial Day weekend. We were listening to the race. We went to the, I went to the nursery early in the morning, got a bunch of stuff. And then that day we put in a bunch of vegetables and it took off. Um, and once I saw that and every day I would come out and I would look at my leaves and my plants and I would try to take care of them. And after doing that, eating fresh, fresh from the garden, I thought, well, I wanted to share this with other people. So I kind of started what, it's a CSA, but I didn't know that at the time, uh, Community Support Agriculture. Uh, so I was saying, you know, give me like $50 at the beginning of, before the season starts. 
and I'll invest that money into the garden, and I'll take care of the garden. I'll water it. I'll buy the plants and stuff. And all you need to do is come by every every week or so and pick up, you know, a pound, two, three pounds of produce. Jared found that though people wanted to support him by purchasing a membership, they didn't always show up to pick up their shares. And he struggled to find places to donate the fresh produce. Many local pantries were only set up to take non-perishable food. He eventually found a pantry that distributes produce, and he donated some to Second Helpings, a community kitchen that's well-versed in handling perishable foods. But Jared realized that he needed to adjust his model to make it work for him. So then I moved into working with Big Car down here in Garfield Park. I started doing their raised bed gardens. And once I started doing the raised bed gardens, I learned that, you know, maybe I could take the, the garden actually to the people's house instead of them coming to get vegetables from my house. The Tube Factory is an art space. It's a museum, gallery, and public community art area. So I've been working with them for the last almost 10 years now as a community artist. And they've been very supportive in all of my endeavors. And then as I moved into the gardening, they had boxes that were already available to them. And I stepped in to work those boxes and worked a few other boxes in the neighborhood. And I really learned the craft doing that. Then once I did that, I learned how using a raised box, a raised bed, how like much more efficient and much better the growth was. And then also how much more accessible it is to people because a lot of times people, either you can't dig or you don't want to dig or you know your ground or your soil might not be good or you might have you know animals or you might have you know pets and you want to raise it up or you want it to look a certain way. Uh, I found that the boxes were much more efficient. You could control the soil and also it allowed for individuals that may have never grown anything before to be more successful. It's much more successful that way. Taking that and then moving into trying to find a way to replicate that at a retail level for individual homes, and that became really a good thing for, for me. Once I realized that the CSA format for me personally wasn't going to be, uh, personally and professionally wouldn't be that great, uh, I started having people inquire about, you know, I want to start a garden. How can I do that? And I was like, okay, let me figure out what would be the best way to bring a garden to people's homes uh, because it, the, I always say what's fresher than the farmer's market is your yard. If I can walk outside and pick something, it's going to be much more likely that I'm going to eat that than if I have to go somewhere to get it. Um, so I started doing some investigation after I learned about, you know, raised bed gardens and square foot gardening. I started doing some, uh, some research, and then I said, you know what? Let me attempt to build some of these on my own. Because there are a lot of kits out there and things, but I wanted to build it on my own. And I didn't have a whole lot of experience with, like, woodworking and power tools and any of that. So I learned all that stuff, and then I started developing a basic box concept that I liked. It's a four-by-four box that gives you 16 growing zones if you're in a square foot gardening. I put a little fence around it so that, I mean, animals are going to get into it, but not as many. That that barrier tends to help quite a bit. Uh, And then I started learning about, you know, where to put companion gardening, like what plants need to be next to what, and, you know, what positioning in the garden, north, south, east, or west, should you put certain things. And then once I got through all that learning, um, that next season I came out and I started offering a few boxes. And I had one customer that first year, and they're still a customer of mine, and I come by every year and I replant their box. And then after that, it started to, it started to, to grow. People started to see the, the promise in the product that I was producing. They started to see the growth. People started to see health-wise the benefits 
of eating fresh. And then unfortunately we had a pandemic where everyone was at home. They needed things to supplement their STEM education for their children. They were worried about food in the stores. They were worried about you know, supply chain. So it kind of all came together at the same time. And not that I would ever say that the pandemic was a benefit, but it was a benefit to those individuals who were interested in growing their own food because it taught them how, it taught a lot of people how necessary it was. It also was kind of a, an issue for a while because that first year, um, during that first summer of the pandemic, there was a lot of seed and a lot of materials being used by individuals that hadn't used it before. So for individuals that were in the industry or in the business of the agricultural business, it became more difficult to find supplies and things. Um, but I never got upset about it because I knew people were using it for a good. It was overall good that people were being in, more engaged and more involved in the food that they're eating. But the pandemic led to other issues, which we'll hear about after a short break. My guest is Dr. Jared Dorch of Soulful Gardens in Indianapolis. Stay with us. I'm Kate Young. This is Earth Eats. I'm speaking with professor, community artist, and urban grower, Jared Dorch. Before the break, we were talking about how the pandemic increased demand for his raised bed gardening services, but also how gardening supplies were somewhat depleted due to the new crop of home gardeners that had sprouted up with stay-at-home orders and food scarcity concerns. This year, Jared found that lumber was so overpriced, it made it difficult for him to continue building raised beds for the prices he had been offering. I did uh, a really large community garden up in Gary, and by the time I got it done, the wood I was buying for the last set of beds I built was five, you know, uh, $5 to $10 more than it was when I originally bought the, the original. So budgeting has been very difficult. It's been up and down, but I think things are settling down a little bit now, so. So tell me more about the community garden you started up near Gary. Oh, so I started a garden at a, a, a charter school in Gary, the Charter School of the Dunes. They wanted to supplement their food for their students with the garden, and they also wanted to use the garden for education. So I we built, um, I think we built like four uh, large beds to begin with. And then we went ahead and uh, added more beds, and we also built a greenhouse. We want, hopefully, this will be an opportunity for the students in the building and the community surrounding it to be able to, to have more access to fresh foods and fresh produce. Yeah, like for them, um, I know a lot of uh, times they start seeds in like their science classes and things, and then they can put those seeds into the ground and see them turn into uh, plants. And then also in their math classes, they can learn about, you know, how much you can get from a certain plant and you know even if they do a farmer's market or something of that nature you can start doing some additions so there's so many different opportunities for them to learn from and number one thing is like learning about the soil itself what what components make up the soil how to make soil and i don't say dirt i say soil because there's a, there's a difference soil is something that feeds and nurtures your plants dirt is like what you use to fill holes um, so for knowing like you know getting into vermiculture dealing with uh, worms and uh, learning about worm castings and how that is a benefit to your soil and learning about how um, leaves and other natural materials uh, biodegrade and compost and how that is uh, a, a net benefit for the actual 
uh, flavor and nutrition of the plant or the vegetable that you're eating. Like, like, a, like a tomato is much more nutrient-dense if it comes from certain soil. These are, these are things that students may have not been exposed to, but as we need to know more about these things, I think they will know more about these things with the addition of these type of supplemental educational things at their schools. So you went up there and um, built the beds and kind of set up the system. Do you, will you be offering support throughout, like coming back? And the, the plan is to do some uh, to do some educational programming either via video or in person. But also, it'll, it'll always be something that I'm always checking in on. They've connected with Purdue Extension up there, and they have some strong student and faculty leaders there that are working on it. So it's going to be something that's going to be taken care of. Um, I also will always have a uh, a hand in it as it's going to be something that's always going to be in my heart. So, one of my biggest worries going into it was like, who is going to take care of this? Yeah. Actually, one of my best friends is the school officer at the school. I mean, he's also a pretty good gardener, so I know that he'll keep an eye on things. But I wanted to make sure that there were systems in place, and that's one of the reasons we built the greenhouse. But I wanted to make sure that they had like a water system provided um, because it's it's even though it's a little cooler in Northwest Indiana, it's going to be hot. Um, and then we add the plastic, it's going to be super hot. And now are you going to be able to maintain the, the beds? Are you going to be able to, yes. There's a whole lot that goes into it. I've always tried to stay away from big greenhouses because I know that's going to be, it's almost a job for one person. Well, and also with school gardening, you have to take into consideration what months of the year are they there and what months are they gone and then plan your garden according to that, which is hard because the summer growing season, they're not around. They're, yeah, they're coming in really when, it's, it's kind of a changeover from you're your harvesting from the summer plants and then you're moving into planting your fall garden if you're interested in having a fall garden. Yeah. So it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. And then there's always some you know, transitioning between students in and out and depending on how you have the setup, if it's a garden club or if it's a part of a classroom assignment, who's going to be involved and how often they're going to be involved. So there are a lot of factors. And it really was a learning experience to, to, to find out you know, what is the best means in which to approach a situation where you're dealing with students in school. And that exposure is great. It's really in the area where food access is a huge issue. Uh, it provides them a kind of an understanding. So there's a lot of students, a lot of people in general that don't know where their food comes from. Yeah, I think that was a huge factor is the fact that the, the plan was to utilize some of that um, produce in the actual lunches and actual the meals that are being served. And also it uh, would provide um, supplemental food for families for children to take home to their families so and then also the child feels like they've done something because they've been part of bringing home food and they've been part of creating the food that their family's eating yeah if you can see your own the cherry tomatoes you grew in the salad bar at the school it feels like you have a sense of pride like we did that and i have a real thing about cherry tomatoes because in my garden they're usually like snack food for me or for my animals my dogs but if you go to the store they're like four ninety nine a pound, and I'm like these are literally while I'm out in the garden, you know, working the soil or you know picking uh, weeds or pulling off some dead leaves. I'm eating the cherry tomatoes like yeah. like candy, and then you go to the store and it's four ninety nine a pound. Yeah. So it's really important that we learn about eating seasonally eating and growing and seasonally growing. We've gotten spoiled to the fact that I can go to the, the grocery store and get something outside of the season. 
but learning about creating recipes and creating meal plans based off of what's available at the time is really, really important. Since you bring up recipes, could you talk about any of the foods that you've discovered through your gardening efforts that stick with you or have become favorites? It's really funny because the first little garden that I ever did, I took a chest of drawers, I took all the drawers out, and for each of the drawers, I turned those into little lettuce beds. And then the actual chest itself, I turned it over and I turned it into a pepper bed. So I guess I was doing raised beds before I really knew it. And so in our house, the number one priority for us every year is our peppers. Um, because we can use those in about everything. Yeah. And we like peppers, we like them hot. And we also like to freeze them and can them and pickle them. And then the lettuce, once I had the lettuce from my garden, uh, usually like loose leaf, mescaline mix or a green, a green or a red mix, it changed the way I view a salad. Like it was totally different. And I've been off of iceberg for a long time. Um, you know, I know about the romains and I know about buying green leaf lettuce at the store, but it's really different when you're growing it in your yard. And if you're smart enough and not do like I did and plant all at once, you can have it all season long. And I know those are very basic things. Like I said, tomatoes, my dad always grew a lot of tomatoes and we had peppers, but seeing the vast variety of pepper and the different complex flavors that those peppers can bring to different meals uh, really changed a lot of things. We're big omelet people, uh, omelet frittata, you know, egg-based uh, meals. And so I use a lot of peppers like directly out of the garden, a, a very vast mix of them too. Hot, very regular, like earthy, smoky. There's such a different variety of flavors. So I think, I mean, even though it may not one food, but just the fact that I have access to that many different flavors, especially with peppers, and knowing that there's such a good food for you overall with the, with the level of fiber and other content, I think, the, I think the peppers is the number one thing. You said you hadn't really been that into eggplant before, but then you discovered some things you could make with it. Oh, with eggplant, really, um, the Ichiban eggplant, the smaller um, Japanese-style eggplant. Um, you know, growing up, I've had eggplant parmesan, and, and I'm not a big fan. Like, I, I really actually wasn't a big, very big fan. But finding the smaller eggplant and putting it in the stir-fries and using, like, um, a lot of the vegetables from the garden together in a stir-fry very quick... Uh, hearty, healthy meal. Those are things that really got me. And then the herbs. My wife is very into the herbs and learning about not only the uh, the taste of the herbs, but the medicinal properties of the different herbs. That really has changed the way that we eat too. Yeah. And herbs are one of those things where it just feels ridiculous to go to the store and buy a little packet when you're like, I could just be snipping them in the yard, you know? <laughs> Once you realize how easy herbs are to grow and how bountiful they can be, it really is. It really is. I guess uh, our favorite thing that we found out about is we planted garlic a couple years back. We planted it like Halloween, yeah. and then we uh, pulled it on uh, Father's Day the next year, and that was our that was our biggest moment. Like we were, that was the epitome of we're we're in this now. Yeah. Once we could pull garlic straight out of the ground and have our own garlic, yeah. um, and then the fact that you can just take a bulb of garlic and turn it into like you know eight to ten garlic plants. It takes patience. It takes, you know, we had to make sure that we covered them over the winter and we, we took good care of them. But to see them pop up and uh, to be able to eat them and be able to share them with people, it really changed. Like, that was our, we made it then. You know, we've made it now. The fact that we were growing our own garlic. And now my wife and I were trying to get into, like, ginger and turmeric and some of the more root vegetables and things that are a little bit more exotic. Um, but garlic really was the one. Because I find myself, those were the things that we were buying the most. 
onions. I got better at onions. That meant a lot to me because we used a ton of onions. Uh, onions, peppers, garlic, tomatoes. These are things that we use in multiple different types of meals. It really made me happy because during that time, garlic is growing when other things are not. Yeah. So at least you're still growing something. Right. So I could still go outside and like see yeah. growth and see that that period where you're like waiting, you know, between you know maybe November to March, where you're waiting on something to grow. Garlic gives you that little fix, yeah. like oh I can go out and oh the, the garlic's sprouting, the garlic's coming up. I'm seeing some stalks. You know, it gives you a little boost because you're not able to grow. Growing food is not just about the food for Jared Dorch. After a short break, we'll hear more about what gardening means to him. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Jared Dorch. He's a communications professor, a community artist, and an urban gardener. We've been talking about some of the foods he likes to grow. Some of his favorites are peppers and garlic. We talked about other foods that he recommends for first-time gardeners and how to handle the surplus if your garden is particularly successful. I always tell people to grow things that are going to have a bountiful production um, that you also can save for the times that you don't have it. So the fact that you can freeze those things is really good. Canning and freezing. It's really freezing for me. Um, get you a food saver or food, uh, you know, something that keeps the package without air in it. That's really important. And you can have that for who knows how long. We did a lot of canning. Um, I, I stepped away from canning a little bit. We always made canned pickles like hot pickles yeah. with either cucumber or to, like green tomatoes. Um, there's so much sodium in a lot of that that I slowed down with that. And for a while, my wife would do canning of fruit. My wife made some really great like preserves and jams, but we don't do as much. We just don't have as much space. Uh, and we, there's only two of us, so we don't really uh, use as much of it as others would. Um, my, my parents still do a lot, of, a lot of canning of peppers and tomatoes oh, for pickles. Yeah, definitely. I tell people uh, bush beans is another one. Cow peas, um, oh, like nice. purple hole peas or black eyed peas, yeah. um, they're bush, so they don't take up a lot of space. They produce yeah. quite a bit. You'll get, you know, two or three solid harvests off of them, depending on how many you, you plant. Dry you you can dry them, you can can them, you can freeze them. I think that my number one thing I tell people is that when you're planting your garden, make sure you're planting on things that you can freeze, dry, or can, so there's longevity. I wanted to make sure that what I was growing wasn't going to go to waste. Green beans are like, you know, green beans. Uh, cow peas, which are like black eye peas, purple hole peas, and then tomatoes, peppers. Those are all things that can be, you know, multiple ways of saving them for later. I used to make a lot of canned pickles. I, I, I do like, uh, I call it salsa, but it's really pico de gallo. Now I can grow every element of it. I can grow the garlic, I can grow the onions, I can grow the tomatoes, I can grow the peppers. I can't grow the limes. That's the only thing, I guess. But I could grow a lime, like a mini lime bush. Uh, I haven't done that yet, but... But you can use lime basil, which has got the same flavor. 
Um, so that's one of the things that motivated me to be better at, like, the onions and garlic were issues I had, things I couldn't grow as well. I'm not very good at, at onions. Yeah, onions are difficult at times. Uh, soil is really the key with those. I've had more success recently than I've had in the past, but those were things I know that we, whenever we're buying groceries, we're buying those things, and those are things that I know that are staples in our home. So do you grow any fruits? Do you grow any berries or... Our plan, uh, like we just moved down here, so our plan next year is to start a bit of an or not an orchard, but you know some some smaller plants, some you know your fruit, your peach trees and your apple trees, a couple of those. We've had some, we haven't had great luck with raspberry, blueberry bushes and things of that nature. So our next step is really, I wanted to first understand the growing of the the garden vegetables, but now I want to get more into the fruit and the fruit trees and the fruit bushes and we did do strawberries for quite a while huh. and we had good we had pretty good luck with strawberries yeah. uh, but though that's the next step is really getting into the fruit and learning about how to uh, maintain them and how to keep them going i know that it's a little bit more difficult uh, than just growing your annual vegetables jared has plenty of ideas about what to grow and how to prepare and preserve the food that you've grown but from that very first garden that he planted with his father one Memorial Day weekend, it's always been about more than just the food for Jared Dorch. I asked him to think back on that time, on what led him to gardening in the first place. He was in graduate school, working on his dissertation. Really, um, like I went to the doctor and I got all my blood work done and my health was not good. Mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, all of it was a problem. So when I started working in the garden, it gave me an opportunity to kind of let go of a lot of things, to uh, do something that was positive, to see growth every day, and also be outside. Um, not sitting in front of a computer, you know, not sitting at a desk, to be outside doing something physical. And it got me to motivated to do a lot more than I had been doing. And I think that that um, got me to say, you know what, I think that this could be a benefit for other people. Um, because I know, uh, you know, you get into your 30s and 40s and um, you're in your job and a lot of our jobs are sitting and working at a computer or at a desk and not doing a lot of like actual movement or being outside. I think that it was an opportunity for me to do something that really changed my health. And I knew that if it changed my health, that it could be beneficial to others that I knew were dealing with some of the same issues. It really is a holistic thing. It really is about going outside and um, it really, you know, it's, it's about patience, learning to wait on a seed to grow into uh, a vegetable. Like that's the most awesome transition to see a little bitty seed guy pop out and become this beautiful vegetable and then eat it on your plate later on. Um, it's about actually getting some vitamin D and getting some, you know, some actually some activity about digging and working, about getting to know the earth better. It was, it's really more than just... It talk, it's, it's really about not being into instant gratification. The majority of the things that we deal with and the things that we prepare and how we get things now are so quick that we don't have the opportunity to really understand where it's coming from and understand like the work behind it. Like when I eat lettuce out of my garden or I eat tomatoes out of my garden, it's a different experience than just eating a tomato that I bought, you know, or even now more than anything had delivered to my home by a grocery store. So it's, it's a totally different experience. Yes. Um, the produce, I mean, honestly, there's always an economic factor and the benefit from growing your own food. 
But really, the experience was much less about that and much more about just getting outside, being active, learning a new skill, finding something to, 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 to dive into, to do research about and find out about. That was something that I wanted to do. And it wasn't dictated to me. Um, so it was a totally different situation. Yes, I saved a lot of money because I had food available and I found ways to use the food that I had to make meals, even though I may have not, like eggplants and things like that, I hadn't really cooked very often. But I found out ways to use them because I, I found out that it's really important to be connected to what you're cooking and eating and to have an experience in learning about that. It, uh, it just changes the way that you view food in general. What do you think about the way that a lot of people who hadn't been interested in growing food before suddenly became interested when the pandemic hit? I think that I think it's good. I it's unfortunate that it had to be this situation that got people interested in the food. But for me to get so interested in it, it took me to see my health decline. So if this is what got individuals to be more interested in it, my only hope can be that it's not something that ends once things get so-called better. My hope is that it's a, a lifelong skill that they've gotten now, or a lifelong habit that they have, or a lifelong, you know, joy. joy. Yeah, it's something they, they enjoy doing. I know I've worked with several young people, uh, and every year, like, this is what they like to do. Like, they know they're going to be home during the summertime, and they're growing up, and this is something they're doing, and they've learned a skill that they can use into their adulthood. I think that the number one priority is just that we don't forget the lessons learned from the situation. And then we take the skills that we learn and we continue to pass them on uh, to either, and it's not always just to your children, it's to whoever's open to the information. Like, I want to share it with my community members and my neighbors and whoever else wants to learn something about it. I, like, I want to learn from my community members. I want to learn from my neighbors. I want to learn from young people that are growing things that I'm not growing. I just think that it's an opportunity for us to change, to fundamentally change the way we look at what and how we eat. And I just hope that this isn't just a small moment in that, but it's the beginning of a food revolution as it comes to individuals. And everybody's not going to jump into it, but I think that those who have spent the time and the effort the last couple of years, I hope that they continue to do so and they spread the word. And, and, and I hope that they realize it beyond the economic point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the holistic point. Like, for me, it was totally, like, I can afford to buy food at the grocery store. I don't like to do it because I know from past history, like the, how much more it costs to go to the store. But I also know that there's so many other benefits from going into the garden and doing it than there are from going to the store and doing it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with the grocery stores. We need to have those, but you definitely can supplement your, your eating with having your own garden. It makes me feel better. That's the reason I do it. I like how I feel when I spend time in the garden. It, I find it that I'm more creative once I come out of the garden, too. I do a lot of art-related stuff, and I feel like when I spend some time in the garden, and I, especially if it's time where I can, I can genu like genuinely spend that time thinking about what I'm doing in the garden, it's not just the mechanics of it. Right. Like It's actually like, oh, okay, planning and looking at it and being creative and thinking about the long-term outcome of what's gonna come from what I'm growing or from what I'm putting things, I think that spurs my overall creativity and makes me more of a well-rounded individual as I, as I approach different 
issues or problems or, you know, opportunities, anything. With a full-time teaching job, involvement with community art projects, and the growing demand with Soulful Gardens, Jared has been feeling overstretched. He wants to make sure that gardening remains a nourishing element of his life rather than a source of stress. An injury this summer forced him to step back a bit, and he says he'll be rethinking the future of the work. Soulful Gardens will definitely be going under the microscope during the, the colder months this year, uh, and decisions will be made about how we best can serve our community moving forward. I feel that for me as an individual, it's a little bit too much for one individual to do, which is a good thing. That means you've built something that's gotten big enough that you need to expand. Uh, but now it's really about deciding how we want to expand. Um, and also, I joke about it, we don't want to be McDonald's. I kind of I want to make sure that there's still a personal feeling involved with the business. Uh, but I also want to make sure that more and more people are able to experience the joy of growing your own food. So it's really about finding a balance between um, efficiency and productivity. Like the more that we can, the more people we can serve, the better, because it opens up the more opportunities and more access to more people. But we also want to make sure that we're not so focused on quantity that we're not, the quality is not there. Either quality of production or quality of experience. Because it's really an experience. This season, I, it was a struggle this season. Uh, and I planted some vegetables uh, and some boxes here at my home. Uh, and they did not do very well at all. I don't know what it was this year, but they just weren't doing very well. And I just, I said, you know what? I'm not going to give up on these. I'm not going to just say, you know what? Uh, they all can't be winners and walk away from it. I decided that I was going to transplant them into a new box. Um, all the plants that I had before I transplanted into a new box. And that happens to be the box in the front that's doing the best right now. Um, so all those plants were ones that were underdeveloped. They hadn't been growing very well. And I took some time and I really put some effort into transplanting them, which is something I, I'm not as skilled at. There were okra, eggplant, tomatoes, kale, and what? And chard. And I moved those and they're doing really well now. So they're like the few plants that I've been able to really spend some time with, really work with, um, really, you know, focus in on. And they've done well after a really rough start. And I kind of feel like they are, they give a light at the end of the tunnel for this whole season. <laughs> they provide light at the end of the tunnel, um, even though things might not work out exactly as you want them to, but what, uh, when you want them to, or how you want them to. If you take the time and the effort and, the, and have some patience, things will work out in the end. The garden in his new place is just getting started, but it's already quite productive. We stepped out in the light drizzle to take a look. Okay, so what all do you have in this bed? This is all uh, celery, toma tomatoes, celery, uh, early girls in the middle, patio tomatoes on the ends, and then a uh, mix of peppers and celery. And then over here we've got, Ooh. got some nice eggplants coming. Uh, kale, which um, I got some broccoli in front. Okra, that's coming. These eggplants, I'm really proud of them because they were really, really they, were, they were little shriveled up guys. And they are beautiful now. 
They look gorgeous, They're and they don't have all that like flea beetle damage. No, because that you a lot of it's a lot of it's moving towards the the green plant, but the the, the broccoli, I'm going to be able to use that head, no matter what happens to the leaf. I got some few cabbages in here, and they've got eaten up pretty bad. Um, but like I said, I don't put any pesticides on stuff. I don't even put like diatomaceous earth or any of that on it. Like I don't put any of those, any type of anything that'll kill a, a, a pest will kill something else too. To me, yeah. um, so I'm going to start doing like chard has a leaf that doesn't get eaten very much, so I'll do more chard. Collard greens do okay, but cabbage. Kale, they, they get eaten pretty much pretty bad in the, in the hot summer. Yep. So I'm going to work on really refining my technique about the time that I spend and when I put things in and where I put things. Like I got these two beds. Uh, once things slow down a little bit, it's fun, like this is the first week I've had off of school too. Um, but I'm going to fill those up and put like cauliflower and broccoli and oh, some fall some stuff. fall stuff in uh, cool season crops. And then the plan cool. also to put some plastic over the top of these during the fall to do some extension. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. No problem. No problem. I really enjoyed it. It's been a, a difficult season, but um, like I always say, uh, from the obstacles that you face, you learn and you adapt and move forward. Always for it. That was Dr. Jared Dorch of Soulful Gardens in Indianapolis. Find out more about his work at eartheats.org. Insects have long been a part of people's diets, but in the United States, Edible bugs like crickets and mealworms are a niche industry. As Harvest Public Media's Katie Pikus reports, some insect enthusiasts are focused on getting people over the perceived ick factor. Morning. On a hot Saturday morning at the Des Moines Farmer's Market, lots of people walk by a tent that has signs that say, dare to eat differently and eat prairie lobster. It's a cricket. That's eight-year-old Reese Gore. She just watched her dad, Charles, and her sisters, Everly and Charlie, try roasted crickets. No, I can't do it. They don't, they don't have a lot of taste, guys. Reese then caves to the pressure. I ate it. It tastes weird. It wasn't bad. No, it's not. Shelby Smith owns Jim and Eat Crickets. She sells cricket powder and cricket protein bars. But she says her smoky barbecue roasted crickets are her best seller. Hot and spicy and buffalo ranch are my two favorites. Fiesta tastes kind of like Doritos. Smith eats crickets every day, by the handful, in a taco, or on eggs. Smith got into cricket farming in 2018. She grew up on a farm, but her dad advised her to explore something other than corn and soybeans. She heard about crickets on podcasts and bought some from Amazon. She says they were airy and bland. She wants her customers to have a better experience, so she spices them up a little. I want everybody to have the most tasty cricket that they can for their first cricket because for some Americans, that's going to be the only shot you get at getting them to eat insects. It all starts on a small farm in central Iowa. It's breeding time, and the male crickets are chirping. Smith says there are about three-quarters of a million crickets in a building the size of a one-bedroom apartment. So they are only a few days away from harvest. They just don't know it yet. Every month and a half, Smith takes the crickets and puts them in a freezer and boils them before she roasts them or makes protein bars. 
Insects have been picking up steam as an alternative protein source. They take less water, land, and feed to produce than beef or pork. Wendy Lou McGill heads the North American Coalition for Insect Agriculture. She says education and exposure are key to getting people to give insects a chance. And when you are feeding people insects, the it's not so bad uh, reaction is, is kind of our entryway to get people to, to just expand what they're eating. McGill says she'd like to see edible bugs become more standard, kind of like how oat milk or almond milk took off in the market. Insects are already a pretty normal food for more than 2 billion people around the world. Like in Ghana, Iowa State University's Manju Reddy says it has to do with people not always having access to food. People who are not food uh, secure, they are willing to try. But if somebody has their food secure, they don't want to try. That's what Reddy and a student from Ghana found through research. Reddy's a food science and human nutrition professor. She says in the U.S., it'll take a while for insects to become a regular part of the menu. I mean, in my personal opinion, it's going to take a long time to make it as a, as a staple food. It can be an additive. Unlike in Ghana, it's expensive to farm insects here. It's a relatively new industry, there's not a lot of research, and there are no government subsidies. Also, people who are allergic to shellfish may be allergic to some types of insects. Shelby Smith knows there's a long way to go, but her cricket products are getting more exposure. They're now sold at more than 40 high vs in five states. If we could even just get a fraction of the people that eat seafood to start eating insects, I think we're winning. It's just changing the way Americans think about food one bug at a time. Smith says even if they're not for everyone, she wants insects to be more widely eaten. Katie Pikus, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media brings us all kinds of stories about food and farming in America's heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Dr. Jared Dorch. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.